So I think the, the role of historian, uh, I think everyone will define it maybe in their, in their own terms. For me, I, I, I think the role of historian expands beyond just, you know, researching and writing for other academics, but actually engaging the broader public. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law, the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And that was author educator, and historian of the Holocaust and Polish-Jewish history, Dr. Joanna Sliwa. During our conversation, Dr. Sliwa tells about her work at the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, known as the Claims Conference, and her prior work at the American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee. She gives her perspective on the current issues blocking Holocaust-related claims, especially claims in Poland, due to its anti-restitution laws. And we also go into a controversy in Poland over the book It Is Still Night by Professors Barbara Engelking and Jan Grabowski that deals with the fate of Jews in Poland during the Holocaust. We also discuss what inspired Dr. Sliwa's 2021 book Jewish Childhood in Krakow, A Micro-History of the Holocaust, and an upcoming book expected in 2023 titled Counterfeit Countess, the mathematician who rescued Poles during the Holocaust, that she co-authored with Dr. Elizabeth White, as well as her ongoing project titled The Beginning of the Holocaust in Poland, 1939-41. to We close with Dr. Sliwa giving her definition of justice and her thoughts on how her work is creating a legacy of education and inspiration for future scholars of all genocides. Dr. Joanna Sliwa, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you so much for having me. What is it that uh, inspired your career choice as a historian of the Holocaust and Polish Jewish history? Before I um, engage with your question uh, and before we dive into uh, our conversation, I would like to say that the views expressed on this podcast are my own. And um, they do not necessarily represent the views uh, of my employer, uh, the Claims Conference. Uh, so in terms of your question, what inspired me? It was really a combination of, of factors, uh, of family history, intellectual pursuits, professional experiences, exposure to uh, historian career paths, and serendipity, really. So my family history inspired my deep interest in Polish Jewish heritage, uh, in history, identity, and um, in the Holocaust. I was interested in understanding the history of where I come from. My road to becoming a historian was not a straight was not straightforward at all. I was a political science major interested in international relations and in pursuing work in foreign service. And yet, this interest in Holocaust history and Jewish history always followed me. During my master's program in Holocaust and Genocide Studies, I had the opportunity to intern at the Museum of Jewish Heritage in New York. And I also worked as a research assistant at the US Holocaust Memorial Museum in DC. And these experiences 
really exposed me to the career paths of historians, of educators in Holocaust and genocide studies. And I became increasingly immersed in studying and educating about the Holocaust. And this in turn led me to pursue a PhD specifically in Holocaust history. And you mentioned that you work at the Claims Conference now. You previously had worked at the uh, American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, I believe. So would you describe what you were doing there and then how that led to your current work with the Claims Conference? Sure. So the American-Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, uh, the JDC, for our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with this organization, was founded in 1914. Uh, in response to the suffering of uh, Jews in Eastern Europe during World War uh, I. And the, the organization provided rescue, relief, rehabilitation uh, to Jewish communities worldwide, not only in Eastern Europe. Um, it is guided, the organization is guided, guided by the value of, um, of, of being collectively responsible for one another. Uh, today, the, the JDC um, is engaged in fostering Jewish life um, and a Jewish future around the world. It is engaged in supporting vulnerable Jews and in responding to global crises such as uh, the war in Ukraine right now. My work at the JDC centered on academic programs such as initiatives to promote the use of the JDC archives. Um, I also managed fellowship programs to support research on Jewish history. I managed a film grant that focused on funding for, uh, for films with an angle on JDC's uh, role and JDC's history. I was also involved in public programs on themes that were, relate, that were related to the activities and role of the JDC throughout the years. And in addition to that, I also conducted research about the, about the potential of JDC archives for Jewish genealogical research. So I hope what, this, what emerges from what I just said um, is um, the notion that the JDC archives is really a treasure trove of, um, of information, of historical documentation, and of genealogical, um, Jew, Jewish genealogical material. And then the shift towards the claims conference, how did uh, your work with the JDC, did it inform your, your transition and your current work now? Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, the JDC was the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, in short, the Claims Conference. So the Claims Conference was established in October, in October 1951, in a meeting in um, at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City, where representatives of 23 major Jewish organizations met together for the purpose of discussing um, uh, planned negotiations with the West German government for compensation for Jewish Holocaust survivors. And so Moses Levitt of the JDC actually headed the negotiation team of the Claims Conference um, in the Netherlands. So there are many historical connections between the two organizations. Um, and for me, it was just a natural progression um, to, uh, to, to work at the Claims Conference uh, in, in a different capacity than, um, than at the JDC. 
And I've heard you speak about the work for elderly survivors uh, that the Claims Conference does. Do you work directly in that capacity, or are there different facets to what you do within the Claims Conference? So today, um, Holocaust survivors are, of course, um, older people who require wide-ranging assistance as a result of their persecution and suffering during the Holocaust. They endure the losses of health, of loved ones, of their homes and their assets, and of opportunities that people have in, in times of peace. The Claims Conference is continually determined to create and expand help for Jewish Holocaust survivors. It is dedicated to ensuring a measure of justice for, for these survivors. And in terms of the work of the claim of the claims conference for these now elderly Holocaust survivors, so the claims conference negotiates with the German Ministry of Finance uh, for compensation for, for Jewish Holocaust survivors. It also administers direct payment programs in accordance with very specific German government guidelines. There are currently five major compensation funds uh, with specific eligibility criteria based on an applicant's persecution and residence. So there is a hardship fund. There are two pension funds, depending on where the the survivor lives at, at this time and two funds that are specifically for Jewish child survivors of the Holocaust. Uh, and in addition, the Claims Conference provides wide-ranging assistance in forms of social welfare and, um, and, and, and various grants that are geared toward helping elderly survivors. Depending on either the location, the country where the survivor is, or property where survivors are trying to uh, seek restitution. What have you seen as uh, the obstacles to claims currently? So in terms of the the claims that I just discussed uh, that are submitted to the claims conference, directly to the claims conference, uh, one of the reasons why an application could be rejected is when it falls beyond the strict criteria established by the German government. Now, there are ongoing negotiations, as I mentioned, with the, between the claims conference and the German government um, for expanding eligibility criteria for, for survivors. Now, when it comes to property issues, the World Jewish Restitution Organization, the WJRO, addresses the restitution of Jewish communal and airless property in Europe, but outside Austria and Germany. The situation with the recovery of Jewish property and properties in Europe differs by country. And I do encourage our listeners to visit the WJRO website, the World Jewish Restitution Organization website, um, where there is detailed information about efforts in various countries in in Europe uh, to uh, pass legislation um, for the return of of Jewish property, also information about uh, the current situation, historical information, and various articles that have appeared uh, in the media on this on this topic. The restitution issues in Poland specifically, 
Would you speak about that and, and how you've come to be involved with knowing the, the details of the, the issues that are there? Poland is an interesting case because this is the country where the most with the with the largest Jewish population on the eve of World War II, over three million over three million Jews lived in in, in Poland in 1939, um, and only about three up 300, 200, 200, to three hundred thousand Jews survived. So um, the Jewish community of Poland suffered suffered greatly in terms of human destruction, material destruction, plunder, looting, and Poland remains the only country in the former Soviet bloc that has not introduced legislation to return private property that was confiscated by the Nazis and nationalized by the post-war communist regime. Throughout the years, successive Polish governments have brought up bills and made statements for legislation to address restitution um, for Jewish property or to address compensation for this seized Jewish property. Now, these bills turned out to be inadequate, unjust, and eventually they failed. The most recent development in Poland was in August of last year, of 2021, when the Polish government, parliament, the Polish parliament, I'm sorry, passed a law that set a 30-year limit on challenging decisions that were made during communism regarding property claims. Now, this law, this, this law was then signed by the president in fall 2021, um, and it basically extinguishes almost all private property restitution in, in Poland. And so this is just in a nutshell about what is going on right now. And you asked Stephanie about how I became involved in, in, in this. And so, of course, Poland during and after the war is uh, my area of, of interest, of, of, of expertise. So that's how that's how I became uh, involved in studying this, this topic. How did you decide that that would be your area of expertise? I, I come from Poland originally. I was partially raised in Poland. And so I wanted to learn about the history of my country, of where I come from. Um, uh, also, it was important for me to learn about personal family history. And so all of that was intertwined. So that's on a personal level, on a more intellectual, academic level. For me, the Holocaust happened um, uh, in to, to a large extent in Poland, this is where, as I mentioned, um, that's where the, uh, the there was the largest Jewish population, um, also a thriving Jewish life, and that all was lost during the Holocaust. Uh, very few survivors returned and tried to rebuild their lives. And I wanted to learn more about what happened to these people during the war. Um, but also I wanted to learn how they lived before the war, during the war, and how they struggled to rebuild their lives in the post-war period. 
You had mentioned various laws that had been passed, and one of them that comes to mind for me was, I believe, in 2014, I'd read they had passed or, or were going to pass a, a pension law, uh, but it excluded anyone who had been a Jewish person in hiding. I've heard others talk about how Jews living on the Aryan side had been somewhat sidelined by Poland. Right. So what you're referring to is, of course, you know, goes back to the de- definition of who, who is a survivor um, for the purposes of, of, of compensation and, and, and restitution. And there are various definitions. Uh, the claims conference has certain definitions based on German government guidelines of who is considered a survivor for the purposes of compensation. And same thing in uh, in Poland. So of course there were uh, there were efforts uh, in Poland to uh, grant pensions, the ones that you that, that you mentioned, and there were um, people, Jews, uh, living Jewish survivors uh, who are living abroad, who were able to uh, to receive these uh, pensions and in this way receive some measure of uh, some measure of justice. But as I said earlier, these are you know, these are efforts, um, but most of them are continue to be unjust, unfair, and insufficient. Um, to address uh, you know, compensation restitution for the majority of the survivors or all of the survivors um, who, who, are, who are still alive and with us today. What do you see as the, uh, the driving force behind this kind of injustice in Poland or elsewhere that you've seen? I think that on the level of society, uh, there is lack of understanding of, of the gravity of this problem, of this issue of restitution, of compensation. And there is not enough education uh, that is needed to raise awareness about this extensive theft of private and communal property that took place during and after the Holocaust. Um, I think that ordinary people need to understand that Jewish individuals, families, communities, they lost their homes, businesses, places of worship, cemeteries, household equipment, valuables, and, and more. So we talk about items and buildings, land, assets, but these all of them represent a person's memory, uh, achievements. They serve as links to the past and links to the people who were murdered um, during, during the Holocaust. So restitution uh, for property that was wrongfully seized from the Jews and or compensation for, for looted property are matters of justice to survivors, their heirs, uh, and their successors. But it is also a matter of coming to terms with, um, you know, with their countries, with the country's difficult, difficult past, difficult history. It is a matter of acknowledgement and uh, making, making amends. I've heard you speak in regards to specific examples like Menachem Kaiser, uh, who had written a book, Plunder, his experience is trying to get back property in Poland. And he's one example of many. 
The idea that there are some who wouldn't understand why claims would still need to be going on today, uh, I think it kind of segues with something I've heard you discuss about just after the war, how survivors were received and the mentality that was so pervasive that it led to violence even uh, against children as well as adults. Uh, could you sort of give a, a, if you were going to speak to someone who didn't understand why that kind of claim is still going on today, what would you say to them? You raise a very important issue about attitudes and behavior toward toward returning survivors immediately immediately after the war, 1945-1946, when survivors, Jewish survivors, faced immense violence uh, from their from their neighbors um, who occupied the the homes, uh, the businesses of um, of the Jews, hoping that those Jews would not return. All the Jews were supposed to be murdered during the Holocaust, and here you are. You know, people were people were returning, and they were asking for for their for their property. And so there was continued anti-Semitism, continued violence against Jews in the post-war period, and that's something that we need to um, we need to remember that that was the environment in which the survivors uh, to which the survivors returned. Um, and when we, when we talk about the importance of ongoing claims and why is it that you know uh, we have Menachem Kaiser and uh, and he details all this um, you know his family uh, you know his history and and, ha- and his efforts to uh, reclaim his property and this really excellent book uh, Plunder and yes um, because as as in Menachem's case. Some descendants of survivors uh, did not know that there was property, um, that they, their family had property uh, in, their, in their home country, and that there, there is a way to uh, try to reclaim it in, in the court through legal means. And of course, the, uh, the, the legal routes uh, are complicated. You need to know the language. You need to have, uh, you know, a, a, you need to, you, it's, it's helpful to, to know the local language, uh, but most people, right, don't. Uh, you need to hire lawyers and, and be in, in, and attend some of the hearings in person, uh, collect documentation. Uh, this is a very complex procedure that that is also discouraging and doesn't work in favor of the um, of the claimants of the heirs of um, of these Jewish Jewish survivors who lost their properties because they were seized or then nationalized by the by communist commun- by, by the communist regime. So we have these ongoing. Um, ongoing cases, and of course, as I mentioned, there are so many airless properties. And I mentioned for you know a few times now how many uh, how many Jews were uh, po- were Polish Jews were were murdered. And so, in many cases, the the rightful heirs did not, um, you know, family members did not return to um, to to claim these properties and so they become airless and they become absorbed um, by the uh, by the government by the by that by that country now we can discuss about you know if it's if this was the just thing to do um, and um, 
And the WJRO, for example, has been very, very active uh, in trying to um, <clears throat> in trying to engage in discussions about this um, about the airless property, and that it shouldn't be uh, in the hands of the of the of the Polish um, Polish government, right? Um, that this is property that that belonged to. Um, this is the property that belonged to Jews and was wrongfully uh, seized um, from Jews and from their heirs. The the Just Act report on Poland, uh, like it does for many countries that it was giving a, an update on, had expressed certain points where I, I was curious your thoughts. So uh, one of them was, as you mentioned, that they have um, no airless property law and that they're also believe the only country that had committed to do it that hasn't done a private property restitution law that you've discussed. The other thing was they found no issue with their archive process or the openness of their archives. Do you agree with that? Has that been your experience? Well, the archives are to a large extent open. I can say that everything is open. There are uh, certain limits, time limits on when uh, certain documentation can be can be open. I can speak for my own research and access to archival records when I was conducting research for my own project. And I did not have I did not encounter I did not encounter any issues, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't work harder and continue to work harder to make sure that uh, that scholars, researchers uh, have access to um to to all of the historical right of the archival historical record how then uh if you would i'm just curious i i had heard you discussing um that the polish court or at least a polish court in warsaw had requested or demanded an apology from certain professors in relation to um archive issues and i believe it was professors engelking and grabowski what it, I was wondering what the issue, if you could give an overview of what was involved with that and uh, where it stands today, if you know. Uh, sure. It's, that, that is a very, uh, very interesting, very important issue for Holocaust research and Holocaust researchers in Poland. So l- last year, there was an entire, entire case against um, uh, historians Jan Grabowski was a professor at the um, uh, at the University of Ottawa, and Professor Barbara Enkelking, who is the head of the Center for Holocaust Research in in, in Warsaw. And these two historian Holocaust historians, very esteemed um, historians, um, put together a volume uh, that is titled uh, "It is It is Still Night," and the vol- the two volume. Uh, two-volume book came out came out in Polish first. It is going to be published in English soon. I, I I think by Indiana University Press. So English readers will also have an opportunity to to read those texts. Now that is that is a very important study because it offers in-depth analysis of what happened to Jews in various counties in German-occupied Poland. And this is the type of, you know, 
very meticulous um, analysis of documentation of, um, of a variety of, of sources of um, oral, of post-war oral testimonies, of immediate post-war testimonies, German documentation, Jewish documentation, Polish documentation. Um, it is very wide ranging and, um, and in depth. So at issue, was um, was a, a statement that was um, made uh, in the book by one of the historians, by Barbara Engelking, in which she used um, an oral history of a survivor to explain how she was, how the how the Jewish woman was persecuted and then was able to survive. Now the. Polish organization, there's a Polish organization um, that um, found an issue with this, with the, with this, um, with the statement that it supposedly accused, wrongfully accused a, um, a, 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 a village head of, um, of something that he didn't do. And the descendant of the, of the village, of this, of this village head, who's of course now deceased, uh, Brought the um, brought the issue to um, to court, but this entire case was financed, supported um, by this Polish um, organization for the defense of the good name of Poland. And you know the Pol the the his Holocaust historians or uh, here in the U.S. but also in Europe and Poland in particular were observing this very closely about what does it mean um, when as historians um, are brought to court uh, to uh, to discuss their research, being accused of 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 uh, of mispresenting um, mispresenting uh, information, right? Because in the way that scholarship works, um, we engage with each other, we discuss, we write reviews, and and so on. But this was a clear attack. On these two historians, and Jan Grabowski and 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 Barbara Engelking, and so the larger context of this um, of this uh, of the situation is that the current government in Poland, the Law and Justice, is pursuing a very has been pursuing a very specific strand of um, what they call the politics of memory uh, about how we understand how Polish people should understand of. Polish people who um, who collaborated uh, who with the Germ with, with the German authorities who murdered their um, uh, their Jewish neighbors who Jews, which you know, to some extent is correct. There were Polish people who rescued um, uh, their Jewish their Jewish neighbors and and and, and Jews who were you know strangers to them, um, but that is not. The, that is not the story of the Holocaust in Poland. That it, the story, it's not a story about rescue. So this history is being distorted, and this law case was an example of the distortion of um, of Holocaust of Holocaust history, and it was an example of an assault, uh, of intimidation of, um, of of Holocaust historians. Right, of course, um, it is a complex it is a complex uh, issue, and. Um, the, the the politics of memory is is really a particular way of um, of viewing of viewing history of viewing one's national place 
in that history. So if we of um, of Polish uh, Polish uh, Polish history of Pol of Polish behavior uh, during the war, and that centers on rescue, right, and not on the dark parts of history, such as you know, denunciation of Jews, collaboration um, with the um, with the authorities. The politicized version of history is about um, honoring honoring uh, those who resisted uh, the Nazis and kind of marginalizing uh, the, the, the parts of history that are not convenient, right? So there's an entire mechanism in Poland that is, that is set in place with government-sponsored um, institutions um, that kind of engage in, the, in, these, uh, in these efforts. It prompts me to ask your thoughts on on when the Just Act report had referenced the commemoration efforts that are being made in Poland. It, it states that they have observed that they are being taken seriously. Do you see that as uh, what you've observed? And based on what we're discussing, do you think that's the case? In terms of commemoration of the Holocaust in Poland? I believe that's the, okay. the requirement or, or the thing that they were being judged on in the Just Act. Right. So, of course, um, there are, you know, there are various endeavors, initiatives to commemorate the Holocaust in Poland, to commemorate uh, Jewish life that was uh, that was destroyed in Poland. And, mo you know, these are gr often grassroots, uh, grassroots efforts or efforts of non-governmental organizations efforts of educators who um, who have also training, uh, who've received training in, 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 in Holocaust education. So there, there are those kind of commemorations, of course. Um, there are commemorations on state level, and of course, you know, every every year uh, on the anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto, uh, Warsaw Ghetto uprising in, in spring. Uh, in, the, in the spring, there are commemorations taking place at monuments and so on. But there are also the more problematic uh, commemorations of um, of those whom the Polish politicized version of of history hails as heroes, and who in fact were active in murdering um, murdering Jews after the war. So that is um, that is a problem. Um, there is also a problem, for example, with the most recent um, commemoration efforts uh, in Maukinia, which is a village. It was a stop, right? On a stop um, on the way to the Treblinka killing center. And most recently, um, the one of the or, uh, organizations that is supported by the Polish government organized a commemoration, the plaque and everything, um, of a Polish railway worker who supposedly gave water to the uh, to the Jews who were locked in the boxcars. And of course, there is no way of finding out what actually happened. There is no hearsay, um, perhaps one source um, that it, that it cannot be really verified. Um, but the most problematic thing here is that, you know, in a place of Jewish death and destruction, uh, what is being commemorated 
is a Polish railway worker who may or may not have provided water to um, to Jews, right? Uh, and we don't even know if that happened when the, the narrative or the historical knowledge that we have is that um, Jews were you know, begging for, for water in those, in those trains that were heading to Treblinka. Um, they, they were exploited um, by sometimes by the local by the local population who was eager to rob them of, of everything um, for you know for a, for a glass of water. So again, there is the distortion of history um, to suit certain political narratives and, and versions of how people want to see themselves. You said that the English edition of It Is Still Night, Volumes 1 and 2, is coming out. Did they uh, settle or appease the Polish court with their apology demand? Right. So in the end, um, it was decided in the in the court in favor of um, of the of the historians, right? Because basically, the historians had to appear in court and prove to the court, try to explain, prove to the court, um, the why they used specific, um, specific sources and um, why specific sources were, you know. Each, every source is is produced in a in a in a particular context, uh, temporal context, um, historical, political, social, personal uh, personal context, and so you know, oral oral histories is something that historians have been increasingly using for for many years now, and. Um, and of course, there are issues of people's memory, how they how they remember, how they phrase uh, uh, certain things. Uh, but historians are are trained to uh, to look for patterns, to look for silences, to uh, to look um, for uh, inconsistencies. They're trained to uh, to look for information, other evidence that could be corroborated. So, you know, in in the end. Um, the, uh, the, the historians, um, were, were, were not, uh, punished for, for using the research that they were, that they were using. Um, but, you know, this whole case, um, really court case really, uh, sent shockwaves, um, in the, in the academic community and especially in Poland when, where you have, where there is in, a lot of interest in in, in Holocaust uh, research, and there are many emerging scholars, uh, especially who are doing just really fantastic uh, fantastic projects uh, that relate to the um, to the wartime uh, history, Holocaust Holocaust history, and to the immediate post war um, post Holocaust uh, history. So they were concerned too. Would they be able to pursue their research? Would they be punished for saying the truth? Would they be punished if they researched, you know, Poles who collaborated um, with the with the Germans during the Holocaust? If they called called out Poles, used their names um, of Poles who denounced Jews, who murdered Jews? Those were very important, serious um, questions. But these were also questions about the future of Holocaust research in Poland. And the fact that we need 
to do, we need to keep doing more to, um, to address, to counter Holocaust distortion and the efforts um, on you know, social level, uh, but also political level to counter um, Holocaust distortion. Has there been a chilling effect that has resulted from this? Well, I, I think one of the things was because of this case and, and this court case against um, professors Grabowski and Engel King uh, and how publicized this case was, um, that it was really not confined to Poland, right? That scholars, uh, and not only Holocaust historians, but um, scholars uh, in the United States uh, took a great interest uh, in what was happening uh, in in Poland and how basically history research was put on trial, um, and and I think that was a very important development um, to support these scholars, these two scholars, uh, but also a way to um, inform the wider academic and non-academic uh, community um, about the dangers of Holocaust distortion and of kind of you know, promoting a politicized version of, of history. And that leads me to ask you about several of your book projects. So the first one I'll start with is uh, your your book on Krakow and, and Jewish childhood in Krakow. What prompted you to focus on that area of microhistory? And would you give an overview of that book? Sure. So um, I came to write this book um, and kind of be involved in this, in this project to learn about um, what children such as my own grandfather went through during the Holocaust. And I was also inspired by uh, visual culture, by film, um, and that kind of sparked questions about what did children go through during during the war? How did they live their lives? What were their daily lives like? Um, what were their responses? How did how did adults um, what did adults do to safeguard children? Uh, adults and you know, members of the Jewish community, uh, but also non-Jews, what did they do um, to alleviate the, the, the suffering of, of children? And during the course of my, of my research, I discovered um, the really variety of roles that Jewish children took upon themselves, um, you know, as um, as breadwinners for their for their for their families, uh, as rescuers of other children and of other Jews, um, as young people who wanted to, to really wanted to live, who wanted to have some vestiges of um, of childhood. So this is a this is a a, a book. Um, Jewish children in Krakow: A Microhistory of the Holocaust really tells the history of um, you know, of Krakow during during the Holocaust, during the World War II, through the from the perspective of Jewish children's experiences and recollections. Um, Krakow uh, has a very important place in, in, in Jewish history of, of Poland. This was a major hub for Jewish religious learning before the war. This was a major center uh, where Jews lived. 
um, one of you know one of the um, cities with the largest Jewish population uh, before um, before the war. Today, it is also uh, a, thri a thriving center of Jewish life with um, with a with a JCC, with a, a Jewish religious community, with uh, a few operating synagogues, uh, with a Jewish preschool, and so on. And before the pandemic, of course, this was a place where many tourists came, Jewish and non-Jewish. They came to see uh, the the sites associated with Schindler's List, the film that was. Um, you know, shot in, uh, in, in Kaku. And I noticed over the years that, you know, there was this interest in Kaku, but there wasn't really a, a book, especially in English, that would, that would introduce visitors and anyone who's interested in the story to the Jewish history of the city during the Holocaust. Um, and so my goal in writing this book was um, was also to make this history accessible uh, to both academic and non-academic um, readers. You mentioned that in addition to film, there was also visual culture that inspired you. Were there any other films or objects that were uh, the inspiration? Yes. So um, the film Schindler's List was one of my inspirations for this uh, for this for this project. I saw this film many years ago, and it just uh, elicited so many emotions and um, and questions. And I'm sure I wasn't the only one, you know, for for people who saw this film when it when it when it first um, was released. But the, of course, other inspiration apart from the personal store, personal family story, um, is it, the books that I read um, are the are the accounts of uh, of child survivors are the stories of, of Jewish children who survived. And one of the most influential books for you know, my kind of thinking about this, uh, about this topic of, of Jewish children, and is it even possible to write a, um, a Holocaust history of, of Jewish children, um, was was the book by historian Deborah Dwork, Children with a Star, uh, Jewish Youth in Nazi Europe. And this book, when it was published uh, in the 1990s, was really groundbreaking. Uh, this was the first time that, um, that, a, that, that a historian, a scholar, was using oral histories that she conducted uh, with survivors. And she was using memoirs and, and, and diaries of, uh, of child survivors to write this incredible story of how children uh, lived how they were persecuted, how they struggled to survive in various countries in uh, in Europe, and also how adults, members of social welfare organizations, of these net rescue networks, how they tried to help children, provide assistance to them, rescue them. And this was just such an eye-opening book for me. Um, and and really set me on the path to uh, to to research uh, Jewish childhood in Krakow. Uh, your current project, I would love to hear your inspiration for it. The counterfeit countess that you, I believe, are co-authoring with Dr. Elizabeth White. This is just such a fascinating story and such a, a you know, meaningful project to work on. So. 
Elizabeth Barry um, White, who is a historian at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum, previously she was a historian in the Office of Special Investigations uh, that were you know, in the State Department that was looking for um, uh, researching and then tracing um, former Nazis who, who settled in the, uh, in the U.S. And so in the 1990s, um, Barry uh, attended a conference where she presented on the history of the Maidanic concentration camp, and she's an expert on this uh, on this topic. And she was approached by a professor who gave her, who gave Barry uh, a copy of a um, of a memoir, uh, you know, a copy of a memoir uh, in English. And uh, and he said uh, something along the lines of. Uh, you know, you're you're a, you're you are a uh, an expert on on Maidanic, and I have something that uh, that might that might interest you. So, you no, know, over the years, um, Barry was in, involved in other, and 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 it became sort of you know lost, right? And um, no one rediscovered this this manuscript. And Barry was always thinking about this. This was always in the back of her head, you know, there, that, 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 she, that she received this. Perhaps she should do something about it. No one appears to be to, uh, in 2023 by Simon and Schuster. So now maybe I, I will just say what the story is about. Um, the, the story, Counterfeit Countess, the Jewish mathematician who rescued Poles during the Holocaust, centers on a woman, a Polish Jewish woman, who um, received her doctorate in, uh, in, in mathematics and philosophy from the uh, famous Jan Kazimierz University in Lwów, today Lviv, Ukraine, but before the war was Poland. And during the war, um, her name was Yanina. During the war, Yanina and her husband managed to escape from, uh, from Lviv to Lublin, uh, a city in, in German-occupied Poland. And they managed to do so with the help of a Polish count. Now, Yanina was connected to the Polish nobility uh, because of where she lived, where she grew up. Uh, she knew these people. So uh, in Lublin, Janina assumed the false identity of a Polish countess, uh, and she joined the Polish underground. She joined the uh, main welfare council, which was a relief organization for um, that was providing help for uh, for Poles. This was a German-approved uh, relief organization, and Janina was negotiating with. Um, the German authorities with top Nazis in Lublin um, to provide assistance, uh, food, clothes, uh, medicine to prisoners, Polish prisoners uh, in the Maidanic concentration camp, but also to prisoners uh, in other detention centers in, in Lublin, in a, in a prison in, in Lublin and in transit camps for Polish workers in Lublin. She was very much uh, involved in, in relief efforts. So when we think about you know, Jews during the war, we often think about, uh, you know, about rescue. We think about non-Jews providing rescue to Jews. And here we have this sort of you know, flipped rescue of a Jewish woman who pretended to be someone else, a Polish countess, <laughs> um, and she was helping Poles because she couldn't be helping Jews, um, you know, uh, officially. Um, and she was negotiating with the Germans. 
you know, using her skills, using her charisma, uh, using her German, you know, fluency in German language. Um, and she was doing all that. And she was very modest. You know, no one knew about her true identity after the war. Uh, Barry and I had to kind of rediscover that. Uh, we've conducted an entire genealogical journey, <laughs> research uh, into into Yanina. She did not leave, you know, she did not have any children after the war. Uh, no family. Her sisters uh, passed away without having, you know, they also did not have children. Uh, but still, we managed to find that she really did all these, um, all these activities. And were there certain sites that were especially helpful for the genealogical research? Absolutely. So we've been doing this research during the COVID-19 pandemic. And so obviously we couldn't go um, to visit archives, but uh, Barry and I had tremendous help from um, archivists in Canada, in, um, in South America, in Germany, in, in, in Poland. Uh, people really were interested in this in this story and they really wanted to uh to uh to to help us so of course we we used a lot of jewish genealogical um jewish genealogy um websites resources databases such as jewish gen and um and 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 others gesher galicia which is specifically uh about Jews who um, came from the former Galicia region, which is today Western uh, Western Ukraine. Um, so we benefited a lot from the work of so many volunteers who indexed, you know, masses of documents, and we had this, uh, you know, at our fingertips. That was incredible, and I think it it, it points to the importance. Um, of the, the continued importance of making these um, sources uh, available to researchers. The manuscript. So the gentleman, we, do we know anything about how he got that manuscript or was it authored by her? Right. So Professor um, Funk, uh, that was his name, he was a colleague of Yanina's uh, husband. And um, Yanina passed away in the 1960s. Her husband uh, passed away in the 1970s. Um, but in the meantime, he really wanted to, her husband really wanted to you know, do something with this manuscript uh, to, uh, to inform the world that you know, this woman was doing these incredible things and no one knows about this. Um, and you know, this was, uh, this was 19, you know, 70s, 80s, uh, up until 1990, where women's experiences, women's history, were not something that historians were interested in at the time, uh, in a male-dominated, um, you know, uh, uh, research area, uh, discipline. Uh, it's just, it just wasn't important, you know, same, you know, it took so many years for, for women's history to be recognized, for women's experiences. Same thing for children. We just talked about that, you know, it took until the 1990s to really uh, say, yes, children's experiences are important. Uh, we can learn from these, uh, from, from people who were, who were young and uh, who viewed things differently, experienced things uh, differently uh, than, um, than adults. And the same thing with, uh, with women. So I think we have this, we, we have, we understand 
understand this with uh, with Barry that we do have the special responsibility um, with this uh, with this with the story, but we we do believe that it is very important to um, to tell it um, because you know it's just not no. This is a part of story that is uh, that is uh, the, the focus is on the Polish persecution, right? The persecution of the Polish people. Um, it's not so much a story about the Holocaust of the Jews. Um, it is a story about the Poles and we also. You know, understand as historians working here in the in the U.S. Uh, that um, many people here do not necessarily understand the scope, the extent of the persecution that occurred in World War II, and about the various groups um, that were that, that were being that were being persecuted, right, in various uh, in various ways, including uh, including the Polish people. So we also try to focus on this. No, rather sidelined uh, aspect of, of World War II and, and Holocaust history. The other project that I'd read you were working on is the beginning of the Holocaust in Poland. Is that still in the works? Yes, this is still in the works. It is the next project that I would like to that I would like to do that I actually started, but that I would pick, but that I plan to pick up after after we're finished with Counterfeit Countess. Um, but it kind of stemmed from again from the from from experience. So when I was working at the JDC archives, I of course had access to the you know really rich archival collection at the JDC, and one of that collection was um, the it was Poland, JDC in Poland uh, in 1939-1941. And I was, you know, doing some work with, with that to make it more accessible, more available to researchers um, to describe the collection, translate some of the titles to make it more discoverable. Um, and I was, I was, as I was reading uh, through the documents, I thought to myself, wow, there is so much material that, um, that you know, that tells about how Jewish leaders, um, how ordinary Jews on the ground in these various small locations and villages and towns throughout Poland, how they understood what was happening to them in the first you know, nine years of the war, 1939-1941, before the creation of most ghettos, and how the leadership you know, responded to, um, to the Nazi laws, the regulations, and the increasing um, oppression, and to me that was very interesting. And I wanted to uh, I wanted to learn more. I I saw how Jewish communities in these little towns again and villages, how much agency they tried to exercise, right, uh, in, in order to create soup kitchens with the little funding that they had, um, how they were providing relief for uh, for victims of fires whose houses were burned uh, in the course of German, uh, German bombings. You know, these were people who were thinking about crops, you know, and about, uh, and about tending their land, and should we do it, right? You know, what is the situation going to be like few months from now. Um, fascinating material. And so the JDC had an office in, in Poland um, until officially until December 1941, when the U.S. entered the war. So between 1939 and 1941, the JDC office in Warsaw was providing you know, funding, was providing uh, goods to 
to various Jewish communities uh, in Poland. So that's how you know, this documentation, um, how this documentation emerged. For all of the projects that we've been discussing and all of the work that you're doing, how do you see your work facilitating justice? That is such a great question. And it's also such a complex question because to me, um, when I looking at, you know, thinking about justice, what does justice mean to me? I think justice is about um, listening to the to the stories of the victims, listening to what they have to say, how they wanted us to, um, to read and understand um, what they went through. Justice is about educating uh, about these terrible um, um, experiences, uh, but also about the power of the human spirit, about resistance, about rescue. Um, uh, it is also justice is also about commemorating, uh, commemorating, commemorating the victims and uh, and what happened to them. And of course, justice is about compensation. It's um, it's about providing some measure of uh, some measure of justice acknowledgement for these um, for these people. Um, when we think about when I think about justice, um, justice today, uh, and I mentioned earlier, you know, these elderly, elderly survivors, I mean, they have various needs, many of them don't have, uh, you know, they, they, they live in, in, in poverty, especially in the, in the former Soviet Union, uh, where they don't have these kind of safety networks, some of them don't have their own, um, their own families, or they have um, you know, children with disabilities and, and so on, and that they have to care for all their lives. Uh, they don't have enough for uh, for for medication. You know, uh, th- th- it's it's just heartbreaking to 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 see that. So to me, of course, justice is about providing um, you know s- compensation so that these people can have. You know, live their life in in in, in decency, right? Um, because they have suffered so much. How do you see the legacy that you're creating with all of this work? Another very difficult question, because legacy is just such a huge, loaded word, right? Um, and to maybe to kind of break it down, what I what I hope to do with with my work is of course, to contribute to education, to increasing our knowledge and, uh, and awareness about, about, the, about the Holocaust, um, but also to inspire, um, inspire people, inspire uh, uh, you know, junior emerging, emerging scholars, uh, that they're, that they're you know, even 77 years after the end of, the, of World War II, there are so many things that we don't know. And there, there are archival, you know, archives and records that are continually being discoverable and made accessible. And there's still so much uh, to learn um, about the Holocaust, about the human experience, about the decision-making uh, during, you know, that led to the Holocaust, that allowed the Holocaust uh, to happen. And also so much to learn about, you know, how the Holocaust affected people, um, survivors and their families after the war. Um, and of course, you know, I'm speaking constantly about the Holocaust. This is my area of expertise. Um, but, you know, of course, uh, scholars in genocide studies more broadly who study other genocides also 
look to um, to Holocaust scholarship, you know, how Holocaust scholars have kind of conceptualized this field and what kind of um, topics uh, they research. And also, you know, how can we respond to survivors of other genocides uh, today? How have we done that with, uh, with, with Jewish Holocaust survivors? So th these are very interesting, ongoing, lively uh, discussions that are taking place. Well, is there anything that you want to share that I haven't touched on or asked you? I think you 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 know we've had such a uh, wonderful uh, such a wonderful discussion and um, and I thank you for you know all your really insightful uh, insightful questions uh, that I think you know I'm very excited for this opportunity because it allowed me to kind of discuss the you know what historians what Holocaust historians uh, do and why is it important to us. There will be a link in the show notes to Dr. Sliwa's website to learn more. If you'd like to share your thoughts about this or any of the other podcast episodes, please leave your comments online and tag Warfare of Art and Law podcast, or you can email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drawdy bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.